Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I really don't need to say much to set up this conversation. It pretty well stands on its own. I'll just say that before we get to the topic of short-term missions, we spend the first half of the conversation roughly talking about Amy's own story. She wrote a very, very good book about that story called Dangerous Territory. We do not cover all of it. I would highly recommend you read it if it sounds of interest to you at all. I pretty much devoured it. We talk about these expectations in her faith environment growing up that missionaries were basically the highest ideal along with pastors and, uh, you know, all, all the various soil that she grew up in and then how that came into kind of sharp contrast with her actual experience of being a medium long-term missionary in Southeast Asia. Amy Peterson, I am so stoked to have you. I, I want to start 
with a little bit of inside baseball so people know how much I like your book. A little trick of the trade. People might think that I read all the books of people that I interview. I don't usually read the whole book. Some podcasters do. I believe that Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity and Scott Jones from Give and Take, that they're voracious readers. They read the books. I read the introductions and then usually the epilogue or the f- conclusion, and then I'll skip around, you know, chapters that are interesting. By the way, this is a good tip. If you're wondering if you want to buy a book or not, usually what the author's going to say is in the introduction, and then you can decide if that's something that you're interested in. They're going to tell you what arguments they're going to make, especially for nonfiction. Fiction, of course, and memoir, probably less true because, like, your book is a memoir. You don't want to give away the story. But for, like, a nonfiction book that's making an argument, read the intro on Amazon or in the store and make a decision. Anyway, that's all to say, I am now 85% of the way through your book as of last night, reading it, going to bed, because it is actually a great book. And I am very excited to talk to you for that reason. Well, thank you so much. Um, That means a lot to me. I mean, the story that I tell in this book is a fast-paced, captivating story. There's CIA and police and, you know, love and love lost and broken hearts. So um, I hope it's a story that keeps you reading. But also, I will just say, I hate it when books say in the introduction, in chapter one, I'm going to argue X. In chapter two, I'm going to argue Y. Because I'm like, why? Why do I keep reading this book? I actually, I love it because it (laughs) respects- it makes your job really easy. (laughs) But it also respects my time as a reader. There are only a handful of writers that I'll just read whatever they write because I trust them so much. And they earned that trust over time. There's a lot of books out there, right? So, you know, whatever. So what I want to do, basically there's two parts to this conversation. And if it's not clean, a clean break, that's fine. Eventually I want to get to short-term missions. Mm. In your book, you do a few of these kind of like interludes where you basically give us some history, uh, missionary biographies, short-term missions, long-term missions, et cetera. And I thought that's a really cool angle. I haven't talked about it at all. I grew up doing short-term mission trips. My wife has done like 10 of them. You know, it's a big part of our stories. But before we do that, I want to talk about your own story without ruining the book and giving it away. um, Set up. That conversation, because I think that the conversation about short-term missions will be more productive with that background. So I'm going to start with a quote from your book. I'd grown up believing that the most important, most spiritual Christians were the pastors and missionaries. I was taught that as a woman, I couldn't be a pastor, but I preferred the missionary path anyway. Pastoring sounded like it could be boring, but missions was sure to be full of adventure, exotic destinations, and wild experiences. End quote. This is a pretty common story for female missionaries, is it not? I think that that must be true and actually has been true for 150 years because our options of working within the church are and have been so limited. But if you choose to go overseas, you have so many more options. One of the missionaries I read about when I was researching for this book, she planted churches in Swaziland. She did everything. And then when she went back home in Norway, she wasn't allowed to speak in the church. And I I experienced some things like that myself. But 
it's not just, I mean, this is a common story for women, but I think it's also a common story for evangelicals that we grow up hearing that sort of like the most spiritual careers are pastors and missionaries. And so you can be a Christian, but if you really want to be one of the good Christians, one of the best Christians, those are your options. You can pastor or you can be a missionary. And if you're a woman, you only have one of those options. You can be a missionary. But for you, you have a kind of wanderlust, which you are very clear about uh, in the book. That's something that I really resonated with. I dropped out of college at 21 and was in a touring emo rock band for we, we toured basically nonstop or were in the studio for seven years. We played 800 shows. I traveled the world when I got breaks from traveling America. I would like get home and instead of staying home, I'd go to Europe. So I, I just felt like, and I think we're about the same age, I just really resonated with your personality. Obviously, not every listener is going to resonate with that stuff. But I've recently been thinking about how little I actually learned about the places that I wandered to that my wanderlust took me to. And that is a part of your book as well, right? Of like you, you're kind of fighting with um, the tension between you, you naturally a wanderer, you're naturally an adventurer, which, which works well for uh, preferring the missionary way, but then kind of increasingly seeing that like to make real change, you have to like really know something and you have to listen to those people, et cetera. So I don't know. That's just a prompt for you to kind yeah, of Yeah, Yeah. So, so I moved to Southeast Asia right after graduating from college. I was 22. And I think I knew even, even as I went that my motivations were mixed. And part of my motivation was I really just wanted to love and serve God. And part of my motivation was I wanted to be the best Christian I could be. And part of my motivation was I wanted to be free and to see the world and to travel and to have adventures. And so I kind of had all those motivations going in. I mean, I was a girl who in high school read books like Travels with Charlie or On the Road with Jack Kerouac, you know, and like that was my vision of what an exciting life would be. I just wanted to hit the road. I wanted to see the world. And I had done a fair amount of that already by the time I got to Southeast Asia because I'd studied abroad in college and then I'd backpacked across Europe. So I had had some of those adventures and I kind of thought that moving to Southeast Asia would be similar, would be like backpacking across Europe had been. And then once I had been there for a couple of months, I was reading The Desert Fathers and Mothers. And, you know, they talk about going out into the wilderness to find God and, um, and to be there. And one of the desert fathers I read talked about the importance of staying. And I began to see that where I was in Southeast Asia, as I got to know the other expats who lived there. And a lot of them were like me, they were there with this wanderlust. And they also wanted to change the world, whether they were Christians or not, they were there because they, they wanted to make the world a better place. And as we talked together about what that might mean in our place, how we might make the world better there, I began to see how arrogant those conversations were. To think that I could go in and make the world a better place after I had known this place for like eight weeks, you know, that was arrogant. And I began to sort of realize I don't need to be an expat. I don't need to be a savior what I need to learn to be first is just to be a good neighbor in this place and to find out what that means here and what it means to the people who live here to learn the history of this place. And so 
to really have a meaningful life, it began to feel like I needed to invest and stay and plant some roots and not always be looking for the next adventure. It might seem like that's a separate question from where we started, which is about sort of women's roles and all of that. But in my mind, there's actually a connection there, right? There's a kind of humility that was forced upon you when you went, when you went to the other country. And I would imagine that, you know, most well-meaning and fairly mature female missionaries would have had a similar experience of being humbled by whatever place they went. Hopefully, I'm, I'm sure some of them were just as colonialistic and imperialistic as their male, you know, Jesuit forebears from 17th century Portugal or whatever. But you would assume that plenty of them learned the same lesson. Then they come home and they find actually a similar lack of humility from certain aspects of their home culture that, of course, they don't know about the, the country that the missionary went to because they haven't gone. But they also don't maybe know even about like where their own patriarchal assumptions come from. And you know what I'm saying? There, there's a humility link. And I actually think there's a story in your book that shows this in a very humorous way to me. I'm sure it wasn't humorous to you at the time, but you were asked to make a video. Can you tell the story of the of making of this video and 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 the care you put into it and all of that? Yeah, yeah, of course I'll tell that story. But first, I just have to say, like, you connecting those two things, the cultural humility and the being a woman, really sparked something for me because I've often realized that it's those two years I spent in Southeast Asia that allowed me to, like, grow in so many different theological ways when I came back home because I had seen how wide the world was and how much my assumptions and like all these sort of ingrained ideas were part of my culture, not scripture. And I've been so, so grateful for that experience because it has helped me so much theologically. So I think that's a really great point you made, but yes. If I could sneak uh, one little thing in, I just, I feel like this can never be said enough because it's such a common critique from the right toward the left. You're caving to culture Mm. and it is assumed that there's only one culture to cave to. But there are innumerable cultures to cave to. There are there's regional regional culture. You know, there are very few churches in Michigan who are struggling with whether to display the Confederate flag. (laughs) Right. Like there are southern churches caving to that culture that, you know, there's just all these different cultures. And what about the, the Trump Pence culture? Who's caving to that? I mean, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I just feel like any chance I can bring that up organically, I need to just because it's basically argument number one against liberal Christianity. And it's, it's just frankly um, dishonest, but okay. You're going to tell the story about yeah. the the video. Uh, and this is just, I'm sorry to laugh. It's just a great little story. I'm sure it's funny to you now, but it, it what must not have been. It was pretty painful at the time. Uh, so this was halfway through my first year and my parents' church back home was going to have a father daughter banquet for Valentine's day. And they asked me if I would create a little video message that they could show at their father-daughter banquet. And although this wasn't my church and I knew we had some disagreements, you know, I said, sure. And I kind of took it as this is an opportunity for me to honor my dad and all the wonderful things he did as a father when he raised me. And so, you know, like a good evangelical, I made a little three-point talk and each point had like scripture reference and a personal story. They weren't, they didn't all start with the same letter. 
I don't think, <laughs> but they might have. The three Fs um, of right. fatherhood. <laughs> yeah, fatherhood, right. yeah. yeah. Um, so I got my, my boyfriend at the time to get his video camera because we did not have phones that took videos back in those days. So he got his video camera and I put on my pink button down shirt and had him video me giving this message about like three three great things fathers can do. Here's what my dad did. That's what scripture says dads should do. You should do that too. And when he turned off the video camera, my boyfriend was didn't say anything. And I was like, well, what do you think? And he said, is that what they wanted? I was like, um, it's for a father-daughter banquet. Uh, yeah. And he said, okay. And so we like mailed it off to the church and I basically didn't think about it again until the day after Valentine's day, when my dad called me on the phone and I said, how did it go? And he said, not great. A lot of men walked out. And honestly, the first thing I could think was like, maybe some of the daughters had been wearing dresses that were immodest. Like, <laughs> because and you called them out on that part. or something yeah yeah like maybe well no i just oh thought, no you're like, just what, saying like what, unrelated to your video yeah, immodesty was like, running rampant at the father-daughter thing <laughs> <laughs> when he said some of them walked out it didn't even cross my mind that it could have been because of me i'm like what could have possibly gone wrong maybe a girl was wearing spaghetti straps because that's the kind of thing they really care about right. there you know yeah and no, some some men walked out because I, a young woman, had deigned to teach men. It had never occurred to me when they asked me to record a message for a father-daughter banquet that they wouldn't want me to teach. I mean, what did they want me to do? What did they mean by a message? Right. <laughs> I mean, Those of us with evangelical background could fill in our own answers to that question. At the beginning of the chapters, you just have these little quotes. A lot of times they're from missionaries and stuff. When did Lottie Moon live? When was she working? Oh, it was like 1800s, mid-1800s. Yeah. So yeah. she's in the 19th century and she has this like all-time badass quote. She says, I halted at two villages and had an enjoyable time talking to the women. That the men chose to listen to was no fault of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she was really so amazing. And later in her life, she even became more direct. And you can I mean, you can tell she's moving towards that. I mean, that the sarcasm is not exactly light (laughs) in that when you get down to it, there's just there's just literally no way to draw the line. So a lot of churches will use Beth Moore's Bible study curriculum maybe for small groups, but they wouldn't let her preach if she came to visit. It's like, how do you delineate what counts as teaching? Uh, Certainly there's no strict lines that appear to be drawn in the new Testament, like in acts and stuff. It's just like, we don't have to just complain about it. As I'm sure, you know, some of them have no problem delineating and in fact have published long, long lists of exactly what women can and cannot do. Well, yeah. I mean, that kind of thing is everywhere. I I told this story on a different podcast when my wife had an ectopic pregnancy and we had to make a last minute decision about surgery. Don't worry. This was years and years and years ago. You don't have to feel bad for me. (laughs) I'm telling this because it's funny. I was considering Catholicism at the time, uh, becoming kind of like a liberal Catholic. And so I looked up, I just Googled, you know, I knew that they had a lot of medical ethics stuff around abortion and everything. 
And I found that this guy had written, if you remove the entire tube, that is not abortive. That's like removing cancer. But if you slice open the tube and vacuum out the fetus, which, of course, can never be viable, uh, and then attempt to save the tube to have children in the future, that's abortion. And at which point I was like, cool, man, I'm out. Like, (laughs) that was not the reason I didn't become a Catholic. I wouldn't have become that kind of Catholic anyway. That guy doesn't speak for all Catholics. But like, there are people who spend their time thinking about stuff like that and publishing about it. And so if that exists, then, of course, these other things exist. Right. And just as I was beginning to see these sort of like life and death issues and like real gospel issues play out on the other side of the world, those kinds of arcane debates just became so meaningless. And to try to police what a woman was doing or wearing just so unimportant. And I mean, that moment really when the church responded that way, was just a moment when I was like, okay, I'm done with that argument. Like I'm leaving that argument behind and going to where I can see the Holy Spirit is at work and I'm going to join the Holy Spirit there. And if you want to stay in your very closed church, then okay. Um, But I'm not going to waste my time on that argument anymore. And, And there's also some like implied racism that that church would feel fine about sending a white woman to go be a missionary and preach the gospel to brown skinned men, but she can't teach white skinned men in their church at home really says something. Let's pursue that a second. I I thought that was really interesting thing you brought up in the book as well. So the way that you made that argument was basically saying, so, so the, the generous way of reading the view of these men is something like women can preach and start churches when circumstances are not, you know, ideal, something like that. Right. So if the gospel's never gone there, we just it's all hands on deck. We'll sort out the eldership later, you know, or whatever. But so that not ideal uh, (laughs) that that packs a lot of power, actually, because it it assumes that what we have back here is ideal. Mm. And there's a compassionate way of reading that and an uncompassionate way. The compassionate way is, well, we have plenty of resources. Enough people are Christians that that we can sort of like, you know, be a bit more careful about how we structure our churches and stuff. Again, I'm just playing angel's advocate here for them. Um, but of course, yeah. the the un, the unchecked, maybe unthought about version is like actually kind of everything about what we do is ideal and everything about over there is not ideal. And it's not always obvious when which of those is at play. Yeah. The argument I always heard growing up was like, well, we can see in scripture that God will use women if the men have been unfaithful. And so like God used Deborah and that was a judgment on the men of the time because none of them were stepping up to lead. And that just like that fit in the paradigm I had been taught. And so I just kind of accepted it. And then later in life, I went and I read the story of Deborah. Like there's no indication in the text that that's what was going on. At all. God chose Deborah, not as a second best, not because the men had all failed. God chose Deborah. Deborah was the one God wanted. So uh, listeners are sick of me talking about Jonathan Haidt and his book, The Righteous Mind, and the idea that basically, you know, eight times out of 10, the reasons we give for positions we hold are not the real reasons we hold them, but we find reasons to basically explain or justify things we already kind of feel or lean toward or feel comfortable with, something like that. The further you get into 
I think, theological debates. Like the, the further out from Christ, essentially, more and more evidence, it seems to me, piles up that we're just we're just making sense of things we already believe at this point. We're not that that's what proof texting proof texting is the greatest example of that in, in the Christian tradition is like, there is a verse for everything if you use it right, which means, and this is the mechanism by which that happens. You have a thing that you believe or feel or lean toward, and then you find the verse, right? Yeah. And I mean, I don't know any Christians who would say proof texting is okay, but the point is that proof texting is like an obvious manifestation of that. While all of us are internally just automatically acting that way all the time, we agree with those things, which we are already inclined to agree with that fit the world as we've seen it so far. And that's why going overseas in general was so important for me because it made me realize, oh, the way that I see the world and have seen the world so far is not only not the only way to see the world, but it is radically different from how some people see the world. And that is really vital. Yeah. The difficult next step for someone who recognizes the proof texting connection to, to Heights work is to go, okay, so now I listen to this podcast. You have permission every week. And the more I listen to it, the more plausible Dan's worldview and the worldview of his guests become and the worldview of the other people. If I'm a patron, the other people in the Facebook group. And so Everything is going to seem more plausible to you based on what you consume, and that does not actually mean it's true. Now, there's other reasons it might be true or false, and that's why we have to debate the arguments themselves, because merely relying on what feels plausible to me, well, that's exactly what these men did who walked out when you sent the message over. They didn't. They weren't parsing the arguments. They were just reacting to, I'm not used to this. This is uncomfortable, right? So- there's a deeper and sort of lifelong lesson there that literally I, I will be thinking about for the rest of my life. Do I find this thing persuasive because it is or because it's plausible to me for a bunch of other reasons that have nothing to do with whether it's true? Yeah. I, and I actually write a little bit more about this in um, my second book, which is called Where Goodness Still Grows. And I have a chapter. So in that book, I look at the virtues I grew up with as, as a child and sort of reimagine them. And one of the virtues I look at is discernment. And I see like I was taught that this is how you come to know truth. You read the Bible and you use logic. And it turns out in adulthood, it's not quite that simple. And logic can really be used to defend almost anything, right? And so one of the ways I've kind of approached that in adulthood when I when I recognize I'm inclined to agree with the things I already believe is I've I've taken that verse from the Psalms that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You can taste something and see how it tastes. Does it taste good? Does it taste sour? Does it leave a bad taste in your mouth? And I think that this is one way we come to know truth is actually by tasting different ideas. And, you know, some people have a very limited palate and there are lots of flavors they don't like. But the more you try new things, the more your palate expands. And sometimes you can go out at a fusion restaurant and eat this Chinese Italian dish that you never would have thought of eating before. And the combination of flavors is amazing and lets you taste something you've never tasted before. So I don't mean to say truth is just whatever feels good, right? Whatever tickles your taste buds. But I do think that we can cultivate 
taste for truth. And sometimes that means tasting new things, things that seem gross at first and seeing, seeing how it goes. And sometimes it means pairing ideas that wouldn't normally go together, like fusion dining and finding out, oh, if I take this concept from Buddhism and this from my evangelical background and put them together, I see something really new and, you know, something that's actually tastes pretty delicious. Okay. Well, that's going to need to be another episode based on the, <laughs> the second book. A really quick example. I've been reading through a book called Sermon on the Mount Through the Eyes of Vedanta. It's it's kind of been this very interesting look at this teacher who who sees in Christ and his disciples something that is very common in that tradition of like the sort of the guru and the and the followers guru not in a pejorative sense uh, that right, that right. i often use it in a western context not a social media guru <laughs> yeah well and i also i i use it to like uh, we even have a little hashtag joke in the Facebook group, hashtag not my guru, which is me. I'm not their guru. <laughs> I, I, you know, in the pejorative sense, I don't want to be, you know, I'm not their thought leader or whatever. So, but in the Eastern sense of a guru, like a rabbi or whatever, mm -hmm. there that's a cool angle. And it brought some stuff out about the way that Jesus interacts with Jesus' followers that I wouldn't have seen because I don't, we don't have that. I don't, I don't have the rabbinic school model either in my background, which probably people would have seen back then. Anyway, uh, discernment is some, one of my most, I'm like most interested in that of, of almost anything. So I'll get the next book. We'll do that later. Let's Sounds go back to your story. Yeah. We talked about the wanderlust. I, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up that I really resonated with too, which is you set this up like there's the John Piper, the famous John Piper sermon and then book, Don't Waste Your Life. And in it, he really pushes missions. And if you can't go, then you give. And like this is don't waste your life. Bring people to Christ basically is, is probably in one sentence. But part of that is about, you know, white picket fences, two and a half kids retiring on golf courses, obsession with a 401k. I'm, I'm paraphrasing now from your book. That really resonates with me too. It resonated in my twenties and teens. It resonates with me now as I sit in my mortgaged house with a 401k talking to you about this. It still right. resonates with me. I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about that tension either in your story or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't buy a house until I was 30 because I like, it made me feel so afraid a, that I was going to be stuck and not free to go. And B, like, was I just succumbing to like the normal American life? Yeah. So although I probably disagree with Piper about so many things, I mean, not probably, I do. There's something about what he, what he says there that is still compelling and, and I think is still important because I really think it's important for Christians to not give in to the sort of like idealized American dream. And, you know, our friend Danielle Mayfield, her most recent book, really looks at some of those things, affluence and autonomy and power, and I'm forgetting the fourth one, but some of those American values that have really been sort of taken in by the church. And we act like that is what a good Christian life is to, to create for yourself and your nuclear family, a life that is safe and secure with a solid bank account. And I really reject that. Like, I don't think that's what Christians are called to do. But here's part of the problem with the way that Piper and that whole like season of evangelicalism almost framed it. 
was that they framed it like you have these two options. You can be a really super spiritual Christian and go and live a radical life. Or if you can't do that, you can stay and you can give money. So there, there are a couple of problems there. One is it's making this neat division between super spiritual Christians and regular Christians that is false. But the second is that it's letting the regular Christians, so-called, off the hook. It's like saying, well, we're going to like send some money so that these people can do the really radical things on our behalf and so that we can continue on with our normal, neat Christian lives here. Actually, I want to say to all Christians, not just missionaries, like do something radical. And I don't think doing something radical means don't have a 401k. It's fine to have a 401k, I guess. <laughs> I only just got one like last year, <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it does mean like, don't just accept and embrace these American standards that you see around you. I mean, question those things. I'm still pretty radical on that front. There's something so interesting and complex at the heart of this issue. Let, I just want to see if we can kind of get at it. So on the one hand, I think that what motivates the main thrust here of be radical, convert people, or at least give money is sort of the eternal stakes. So theologically, that's what motivates it, right? Is like, we're talking about hell. So, you know, uh, all these pleasures of American life are just sort of nothing compared to people going to hell. So let's work on that. So that's that's on the one hand. That motivates it for me. But I do agree that for us, it's not what motivates. Yeah, that's not what motivates it for me either. I'm saying that's ostensibly the theological motivation, and to some degree, actually, is the theological motivation. Yeah. But then there is, I think, really strong evidence that that's not really the main motivator for most people, because as came up on a previous episode called the Hell Anxiety Scale with a couple of sociologists, very few people live their lives as if they really believe that their non-Christian neighbors are going to hell. For instance, if you did believe that, you would be going door to door. You would not be just living your your 40-hour week job and sending your kids to college. You wouldn't do that stuff because it's all bullshit in comparison. Yeah. So no one does it, right? Uh, or very, very few people. And the people who do, there's maybe even reason to believe that they're mentally unstable. <laughs> That's another well, I wrinkle. Mean, I mean, it, the hell anxiety has caused mental instability. But, it it okay. certainly has for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and for me, like it was the rapture and that's its own thing. And listeners know all about that. But so I'm trying to thread a needle here, but maybe you yeah. can help me by just responding to those two things and we'll see where we get. Ooh, I don't know if we can thread this needle in this podcast. This question is so big. Yeah, is but it- it's there's there's OK, we can't we can't solve it or anything, but I'm just I'm just trying to like get at attention. So. The traditional psychological explanation for the fact that people don't go around going door to door or whatever is that like we just can't live that way. Like we can't live in a constant state of heightened feelings and awareness. Like we talked about this on the Hell Anxiety episode that like there is actually sort of a psychic limit after which you can't imagine the benefits of heaven and you can't imagine the costs of hell. Like you maybe can imagine a hundred years of pain. You could sort of get your mind around that. You really, you really can't. You could maybe really imagine a couple hours of pain at the most. Yeah. You maybe go hundred. You can't go infinity. You just can't. You can't do it. It doesn't compute. Is one way of putting it, right? So there are some of these limits. So let me jump in here. So I think what you're pointing out is that there's this like traditional line of argument that says 
being a missionary evangelism is the most important because of hell. But even the people who would argue that way don't act as if that's true. Right. And so what do we do with that? Well, I mean, one, maybe it means they don't really think it's true, but maybe it means they have like intellectual assent with that idea, but they don't like have any kind of affective emotional resonance with that idea. And maybe it means that internally, subconsciously, they recognize and they know on some level that it's not true. Oh, that's interesting. Let me let me push on the affective thing with your story. So you're in Southeast Asia and we'll probably get to some of this. But basically, you have to leave. You say this very early on in the book that like some of the people you were working with, like got in trouble or it could have been worse, whatever. There's the government gets involved, the police, etc. So while you're there. Let's just imagine that you did have a true affective emotional connection to the fact that all these Southeast Asians are headed for hell. How long could you have sustained that feeling before you burnt out and just either harmed yourself or quit or moved back like hours, days, weeks, you know, that's so interesting to to try to even entertain that thought experiment, because I think when I was 22, even at that point, I I didn't really believe in hell. I was already kind of an annihilationist at that point, but I certainly sort of like held to the evangelical conservative theological party line a lot more than I do now. And so I can sort of imagine believing that. I don't think I can imagine like having the affective response though, because the way that I would have dealt with it is I would have said, I know that God is sovereign. I know that God is good. And so if this is God's plan, then I just trust that it's going to be fine. Yeah, that's frankly, I think kind of a a mercy that there's that kind of way out so that people who genuinely believe that theologically don't have to live like that every minute. I think that if somebody really had like hell goggles on and every time they walked around the mall, Oh, that sounds so quaint during lockdown. Walk around um, the mall. <laughs> right. They just saw people burning in hell. Like, it's completely unsustainable. And so there are ways to sort of sideline that. We can move on. I, I'm just, I'm so interested in the in the phenomenological experience and in the psychology of all this stuff, because that's what I'm studying. But let's connect it to a, a different psychological issue that does come up in the book, or at least the book brought up in me. You mentioned Daniel Mayfield. There was a fantastic patron exclusive episode with her and her sister, Lindsay, about how they, you know, Danielle basically expected to be martyred for Christ. Yeah. Uh, That her mom, though a lovely woman in many ways, built this in her. And Lindsay was like a bit more rebellious and was like, I'm never going to be martyred for Christ. (laughs) (laughs) But Danielle really did think so. And there's something so interesting, scary, insane about the desire or even just the willingness to be a martyr for God. And this comes a lot up in the book because uh, it's, a, it's a big part of missionary narratives and stuff. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on on that phenomenon? You know, I think unlike Danielle, I never would have said that I hoped to be martyred or expected to be martyred. Right. That wasn't my experience. And yet I grew up reading these missionary biographies published for children which really valorized missionaries who were martyred. And so it was a part of the whole sort of like hero complex was the idea that like, yeah, the the ultimate Christian is willing to give their life. 
And so I certainly wanted to be willing to give my life. Yeah. I don't know if that's psychologically unstable or not. It's just, it's really interesting. Have you read the book Silence or seen the Scorsese film? I've read the book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Me too. I've done both. But like that story is a really interesting counterpoint. Maybe spoiler alert. If you have not read or seen it, skip ahead two or three minutes. Um, I'm going to give you a minute to do that. I'm going to give you hit that. Here's the spoiler. I'll say it in 30 seconds. There's the scene where he hears the voice of Christ. You know, he might be an unreliable narrator, but he hears the voice of Christ. They step on me like apostatize for the sake of these people who are just dying for no reason, essentially something like that. And I think that Endo and then Scorsese love living in the tension of whether God would in fact say that or God wants sort of like allegiance unto death. That is like one of the most interesting questions to me of the last, I don't know, hundred years of Christian thought is like, is this good? Like I understand in the early church that, you know, the Roman empires is killing Christians and allegiance to Caesar is not great. And, you know, but we also know a lot more about psychology than we did. Then we know about group psychology. We know that a lot of people are Christians because everybody else around them is a Christian. Is that a good enough reason to be killed? Are we taking sort of lost cause stands at at times? You know, I don't know. It just brought up a lot of stuff for me. And I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. You know, I think what I love about the book Silence is the way that it does not offer an easy answer. Mm-hmm. And even to that question, what that book reveals for you is exactly how complex the missionary's life is, I think. And, you know, I listened to your recent interview with Jim and Brianna, whom I love. And I had to laugh when they were talking about like what they can and can't tell supporters (laughs) yeah, Um, because that felt very familiar, but it's the sort of questions that arise at the conclusion of the book silence are exactly the questions you can't tell to your supporters, you know? And I think a lot of missionaries when they're in the work for the long haul over time, get to these places where their convictions and their theology has changed so much as a result of their experience that questions like that arise and they can't tell anyone about it back home. And I think that there are even decisions that missionaries end up making, which are maybe like that decision at the end of silence, which would appear to their supporters back home to be total failures, right? When they are, in fact, exactly what God is asking them to do. That doesn't really answer the question about the whole martyr situation. Should we ever want to die for God? I don't know. And yes, it's different when we think about Stephen being stoned than when we think about what was that? That John Chow. John Chow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think those are extremely different situations and yeah. probably not comparable. Yeah. Um, if you if you're killed for God because you did something stupid, does that count the same? Right. Like <laughs> it can't. Right. It, that can't be the same thing. Um, <laughs> We're not trying to count these things. We're not trying to rank who's the best Christian. <laughs> I just mean, like That's in God's eyes, the, those. They just can't be the same. They're not the same action is what I'm saying. I don't think they're the same action. No. So a step down to connect these thoughts, a step down from expecting martyrdom or wanting martyrdom. Well, let me, let me just play this out one other way too. Cause I'm. Yes. Now I'm just trying to get you to riff here, Amy. Now you're doing it. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's it's different for us when we think about someone like um, John Chow, who just wanted to evangelize this tribe, right, and die for Christ if that's what happened. But I do think that there are other issues today that compel Christians and that maybe bring us to places where we are putting our bodies in danger that might make more sense to you and me. So I'm thinking about Christians who join protests for Black Lives Matter and are putting their bodies in places where they may experience some real wounds, maybe not death, but some real physical pain. Right. And I don't think possible. Yeah. that they're doing that out of some like weird psychological martyr complex, but like out of a deep passion for justice, right? And a willingness to even experience pain in the fight for justice. And so I think if we if we maybe throw this into some other situations like that, we can have a little more sympathy for the idea that a person would be willing to experience pain and suffering and even death for something they believe in. Well, that's that's actually perfect bridge to where I was going to go next, which is that both in Christian history and in other religious communities and traditions, there do seem to be these people now and again. They're rare, which is why they're valuable. They just more fully embody the faith of their communities. That They're basically like an avatar uh, and an inspiration. Sometimes these people are sainted. Sometimes schools of Buddhist thought are founded around them and, and you know, uh, or, or ashrams come up around them in, in Hinduism, whatever. I'm not willing to say that all those people are misguided. And it seems to me that in some sense, these people are acting naturally out of their own desires and inclinations and who they are. I do not know how to think about this. Something, someone like a uh, Sri Ramakrishna from the 1800s, early 1900s. Like, I don't know what is required of me around the, you know, should I, do I take him seriously? Do I not in my tradition, not in my tradition? I don't know. I just know that this happens, but then there is a pressure to follow that person for people for whom it is not their natural thing. And I'm wondering, like, it's maybe a lifelong question of how would we thread that needle? How do we look at a Dorothy Day, a Mother Teresa, whatever, and go, oh, there's something there worth imitating, but not hold ourselves. But we don't have the same personality as them. Like, literally, what is available to them is not available to us. Yeah. Not not completely. So yeah. that's just something that also the book brought up for me that I think is really interesting to think about. Yeah, so I've thought a lot about heroes and what we do with them. Because for me, Amy Carmichael was one of my early heroes from childhood on. And she did amazing things like in her own home in Ireland. She like brought education to all of these girls who were working in the mills. And then when she lived in India, she rescued girls who were going to be like sold into child prostitution. She really did amazing things. She also wrote some things that I totally disagree with. And I think that's one of the answers is that when we find our heroes, we don't let them become mythic, perfect, idealized figures. We yeah. make sure they stay human and we see their failures and their flaws and their their failings as much as we see the good that they did. I think that's one thing that's really important when you think about this. And I think the other thing is it's a question of motivations. So 
I liked um, in an email, you, you compared this sort of to like researchers and a Nobel Prize winner. I was, that's my next question. Just go there for me. Okay, great. <laughs> right. So you, you pointed out that like lots of people do the research that ends up in one person being recognized with the Nobel Prize. And so to me, what matters there is that when you're doing your research, you're not doing it so that you win a Nobel, Pri Nobel Prize. You're doing it for love. Basically, I think everything we do, we should do for love. And so it's similar with missionaries or with spiritual life. You don't do what you're doing because you hope to become a martyr, a hero, one of the, you know, one of the ones who has hundreds of thousands of followers. You do what you're doing because of love. Yeah. So the, the connection there is, is also just to, to my training now as a psychologist or working toward it. I'm still four years away from being officially a psychologist and we're learning right now how to read research papers and just the, the insane work it takes to find the smallest thing that is one little piece building to something bigger, you know, and, and nobody who other than the very first people to do something in a field are entirely discovering things newly. And even then they probably have language they're borrowing from, from other fields and stuff that other work people have done. We're all standing on shoulders. And that I think is so related to like fancy missionary, capital F, capital M, yeah. as opposed to someone who just lives in a place, does the work. I really think it's the same thing. Like, and I think that it's a thoroughly Christian idea. And this is actually one of the places of the greatest consonance between science and Christianity is this idea of hum of humility of like, mm -hmm. Hey, you know what? Do your part. It is not about reward. It's not about ego. It's not about favoritism and being the famous wealthy guy. It's like, you just keep putting in the work, keep showing up. Yeah, I think, I mean, and this sort of answers the question about like the desire to be a martyr. Jesus never asked us to desire to be a martyr. I mean, Paul wrote, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbors, right? So I think that that's what we're called to, a kind of life of humble, rooted love. And it may lead to something that people call great, and it may not. And that's not really the point. So this is the the one thread I want to continue on before we uh, hit short-term missions. So there's a quote in your book from William Carey, another missionary, and he says, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, end quote. But in relation to what we're talking about, it's like, what counts as great things? Does working on myself count as a great thing? I mean, I would argue that like almost nothing ever happens without people first working on themselves and being yeah. able, you know, basically getting the logs out of their own eyes, seeing the world more clearly so that they can actually see what God wants of them. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, you know, the earliest um, American and British missionaries in the 1800s, they started forming mission boards about the same time that American corporations were first getting formed. And so they followed sort of the same principles of organization. They formed boards and they did fundraising. And, and this meant that they formed with these sort of same values that American corporations have in business, values of efficiency and productivity 
And so I think that when William Carey said that, he had those kinds of ideas in mind, produce as much capital as you can, right? Convert as many people as possible. I, th- I think that that's probably what he was thinking when he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That's, that's a problem. That's not only in missions organizations, though, by the way. I remember in college being in Campus Crusade for Christ, and which is now called Crew. I don't know why they didn't just rename it, but whatever. It's fine. <laughs> Langu- language and symbolism are not the most important things. They are important. But we did, and I think they stopped doing this to their credit. But while I was there, they had us give these surveys to students that were just ways to talk about Jesus. And we did, we did not collect the data. We did not analyze the data. So we lied. Why? Why did we lie? Well, we lied because a soul saved is the only real currency. A little lie doesn't matter. We're saving them from hell. This was not a missions organization. This was in San Luis Obispo, California, you know, in a wealthy, white, happy town, right? So you see this trickle down. uh, It's it's endemic to a certain kind of Christian theology. Yeah. And so the thing is, when you stop and question, what does great mean? And you look at how Jesus talks about what greatness is. Jesus says the last will be first. Jesus says the widow's might is worth much more than any other offering that's put into the offering plate. Jesus basically tells us our way of understanding what greatness is, is totally messed up, upside down. And, and I think basically that we can't know what greatness is, but we can know what faithfulness is. And so when I think about that line, I think be faithful and God will do something great. And it may not look great to you because you don't really understand what greatness is. A buddy of mine who was also a touring musician was having a rough mental health season when uh, his band stopped touring, which is very common. And he found this guy in Nashville who did free counseling for musicians. Hmm. That's it. Like, that's (laughs) it. That guy had a therapy degree. He lived in Nashville. He put two and two together and he offered, you know what I mean? Like he was where he was doing what he did. And I'm sure he loved it. I'm sure he didn't dislike doing that, but like, that's the work. And he's not going to have a book written about him. No, there's no plaques with his name, maybe on a bench when he dies or something. Right. And I actually think this ties all the way back around to your thing of like the call to go somewhere eventually has to turn into the call to stay or we're not, or we're just going and going and we're just leaving. I think that's how you say it. At some point going is just leaving. And when do you stay? And so, and then that's the heroic work. Well, and it, I mean, it also ties into the point about storytelling and how we tell how, which stories we tell and how we choose to tell them. I mean, the reason that I thought that being a missionary was the most heroic thing I could do was because I never heard a sermon about how, you know, going to professional conferences to stay up to date in your field as a dentist was valorous, (laughs) but it is right. I, I never heard a sermon about how like sweeping up the cafeteria after the school kids eat every day really honors God, but it sure does. You know, we just need to tell those stories better. Yeah. Incredible. Um, Let's take a quick break. 
And then we're going to come back and we're going to do short-term missions. There is a group of people that support this show financially. Uh, Officially, they're called patrons. But on the Facebook group, we like to call them permissionaries. Uh, I don't remember who came up with that, but that's my favorite of the names offered. And those people give $5 a month, occasionally more. And they get, in exchange for that, admittance to that uh, patron-only Facebook group, which has become such an awesome little community, as well as at least two exclusive episodes per month. And the most recent one that just came out a couple days ago is about the historical Jesus. This is a topic that I don't know if I have avoided it. That might be too strong a word, but I have not rushed to its arms. Let's say that way. It's a complicated topic. I am dimly aware of the kind of scholarship around this question of who was the historical Jesus of Nazareth. What can we know about him and what can't we know? Uh, It's complex. I know that people disagree quite a bit. It also uh, maybe matters a ton. And uh, it's something that I don't want to do lightly. So I used the, the more open concept of the patron episodes to talk with a friend of mine who is a peer who has done a lot more reading than I have and just kind of start that conversation. So we do a little verbal processing. He also kind of walks us through his understanding of where the the quest for the historical Jesus has been and where it is today. Uh, and some of the big, some of the big questions that get kicked around in that world. Uh, it's a nice long conversation about an hour and a half long. We really covered a lot of ground. I found it quite helpful and it helped me kind of get ready for a proper episode. Anyway, that's the most recent of these exclusive episodes. If you'd like to hear that or any of the previous ones, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. Those links are in the show notes. There is a sliding scale if finances are rough for you right now. And given the COVID, the lockdown, the change in unemployment benefits, all that stuff, uh, I'm not surprised if that's the case and you don't need to feel any shame about that. If that's you, email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, back to the episode. Okay, Amy, let's talk about short-term missions. Just start with like, what's a basic definition and and give me a few examples. Oh, sure. Everybody knows what a short-term mission trip is. It's when high schoolers at your church raise money so they can go hang out with orphans in an orphanage in Honduras this summer. Or maybe a little better when some doctors at your church take two weeks off and go practice medicine in another country where medicine is not available. There are all kinds of short-term mission trips. But the interesting thing about that is that we've really only had the idea of a short-term mission trip since like the 1970s. It's a pretty new idea. What's the kind of time limit? And my understanding is that that's because basically it got a lot cheaper to travel. Airlines basically, right? What's the kind of time limit? So my wife did YWAM and teen missions. These are like, uh, one of them was for like a year. Some of them were like all summer. What, what counts? I think that most people these days, I mean, I don't know what counts. I think most people these days, if you're going for a year, would not call that a short-term mission trip. But in the 1970s, they would have called that a short-term mission trip. Yeah. Okay. 
I usually call that like medium term because I'm not really <laughs> sure what it is. Like my like my brother and sister in law did nine months or so in Congo. It's not the same as when I built houses in Mexico, but they also didn't move there indefinitely, right? So it's it's they one of those things. They didn't pack their belongings in their coffins. And they did not, which no. is real. <laughs> yeah, that's real, right? That's that's a real thing. Yeah, packing all your belongings in your coffin. Okay, that's. I mean, that's what that's what missionaries did. Yeah, but and, when you had to take a ship across the world or something, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not hopping a Pan Am flight. Yeah, it was a pretty different thing. So there are two different narratives, you say, in the book. There are competing narratives to justify the existence of short-term missions, right? Because obviously long-term missions, basically Christians are in agreement. Yeah, some people, they we send them out. They go. They stay there. Why would we only go for a short time? The first one is that it's to recruit long-term missionaries. And you say that this is the preferred narrative of the missions organizations that work with long-term missionaries. And this is the original kind of argument. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a taste, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe just talk about that narrative a little bit. Yeah. So in like the 1960s, yes, when travel became more accessible and when like the Peace Corps had gotten started and had some success, then churches began to think, well, we should we should do this too. We should send people on these year-long trips like the Peace Corps um, or even shorter to foreign countries. And honestly, the established foreign mission boards and agencies were not big fans of that idea <laughs> um, because a missionary for them was someone who went with a long-term commitment and a goal of evangelism or church planting or Bible translation. Basically, that was it. That was what a missionary did. Some of these shorter-term trips tended to have more of a focus on the physical needs of people. So like we've talked about building houses or schools or working with orphans, dealing with hunger issues, and they were shorter. So the established mission boards sort of said, okay, we'll, we'll go along with this, but we're not going to call like those people who come for one year missionaries. They're potential missionaries or they're missionaries in training. They're coming to help the missionaries. That was what they were coming to do. At the same time, some other like newly forming organizations like YWAM um, or Operation Mobilization, I think it was called. Uh, some of these started up with like basically recruiting college age people to go and have life changing experiences. So this is the second narrative. So it's not so about yeah. new missionaries. It's actually about spiritual growth and serving the poor, some combination of the two. Totally. I think that very clearly by the time I was in high school going on these trips, that's what it was about. It was certainly about actually building the houses. And of course, it was about building our own communities, seeing more of the world. And we'll get to this. It was successful at that in my experience. I I think that probably I, I should ask my wife. I should have asked her before. But something like YWAM, I think there was some like maybe missions is for you. That that one seems to be maybe having both of those. Yeah, I think that's true. I think they were trying to recruit long term missionaries. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think it was really more when the churches and the youth groups sort of co-opted the idea of the short term mission trip that it became about spiritual growth for the ones who went and having a spiritual experience. And in those cases, it wasn't. They, they weren't recruiting people to be potential missionaries, but they weren't just talking about serving the poor and spiritual growth of the people who went. They were also, I think, recruiting 
people into a lasting Christian commitment and thinking oh, that that sort of like intense experience is part of recruiting people into this lifelong following I, Jesus. I mean, in the LDS church, of course, that is a major rite of passage, the two-year yeah. mission for men. And arguably it works. I mean, I, I would say from a psychological perspective, that's quite cunning. It probably does do that. I don't think you mean cunning in like a manipulative. Yeah, I, uh, canny, whatever. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's the word I wanted. Just it, it's it's psychologically sophisticated to yeah. say. And, and in fact, churches are always trying to do this, and and I think they ought to do this. That like, if you're in a religious community, you have experiences with each other with your group that in, increase the bond. That leads to a greater cloud of witnesses for raising your children. It leads to more friendships, you know, social resources. These are basically good things. So I think it probably does work that way. Now we may get to at what cost, but that's what we're going to get to. But I mean, I have no problem with the idea that it it's a deeper baptism. It's a second baptism into a kind of Christian commitment that that makes sense to me, whether or not I would want my kid to do it or whatever. Right. I absolutely think that like shared experiences like that are an important part of Christian discipleship and really valuable and good in many ways. Now, are the short-term trips as we do them good means of experiential discipleship? Not always. And also, should they be called mission trips? Usually, right. I would say no. Let's get to that. But I want to talk about this idea you have around this in the book that I thought was very astute. So you said that when we say kind of one of these canned phrases like, they taught me more than I taught them. Okay. Which, by the way, is something that I have not only said, but is accurate. Like that has been true for me. Yeah. Uh, certainly I didn't teach them shit and I learned something. I mean, that's right. Yeah. Undeniably that's true. When yeah. we say that we're basically saying I went on this thing and the value of my personal growth is more valuable than whatever I gave them. Now you could maybe parse that to say, well, I didn't teach them anything, but I did still repair their building so it's not a it's not a straight apples to apples. Right. Except but, that then we could also probably say, yeah, but there was probably someone unemployed in that community exactly. who could have repaired it better and then used the money to send their kids to school. But yeah, exactly. Right. No, exactly. So so there's when you combine the two critiques, there is it's a pretty it's a pretty bulletproof argument to yeah. say, look, so then why did I go? Uh, did I go then? To build the school? No, because they could have done that cheaper in a yeah. way that helped their community. So then I really went to grow spiritually. So I, I came from my resource rich background to have a spiritual tourism experience where I grew in my faith. And yet, Amy, I'm here to tell you, <laughs> I did grow in my faith. Yeah. Uh, some movement toward where I have gotten today is because of the six trips I took to Mexico. It actually, my band lived there for six or seven weeks and we were making a record as well. I've spent additional time there. I love it. I, there is some kind of connection to it. Obviously, I don't have Mexican heritage or anything. I'm as white as they come, Scandinavian. So there, I feel a tension here. I did grow. I, I did expand. I would say some of my openness to Catholicism, which has been very huge in my own spiritual journey, even though I'm not Catholic, and some of my openness to other faiths and other cultures, 
is partly a result of those trips to Mexico. I don't know what to do with this tension. Frankly, it's it's um, it's a total mixed bag. H- how do you how do you think about that? Well, of course, I'm not going to try to tell you that you're wrong to have grown spiritually from go- growing on short term mission trips. I think that's undeniably true that like a lot of us grow a lot from growing on short term mission trips in high school and young adulthood and adulthood. Also, a lot of teenagers like meet their first crush on a short term mission trip. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's true. But less less silly than that, you said earlier, your two years in Southeast Asia opened the door to theological growth for you. So, yeah. right. And that was, uh, I guess that was not a short term one, technically, but it is, it ended up being a kind of a medium term, you thought it might be yeah. long term. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think there's real value in those trips. And I think that what we ought to do then is ask more questions about our trips before we take them and be more careful with the language we use to talk about them. So I don't like to call them short-term mission trips for that very reason. The primary goal of this trip is not for me to evangelize or even like provide aid to a community. It's for my spiritual growth. So this is not about mission, whatever that really means. So maybe some people have suggested, why don't we call it a vision trip? Why don't you, instead of asking people to support you financially so you can take the light into a dark place as if God's light isn't already there, why don't you say, would you like to support me financially so that I can go see how God is at work in this other part of the world and learn from Christians there? You know, that would be a much more honest way of talking about what the trips are. And you would raise a lot less money. Because people are like, what? You're going to learn from Mexican Christians? Aren't they Catholic or Pentecostal or, you know, like, but that's, but that's good. That actually, that sort of shows some of that supremacy that is at work there, right? Totally. And yes, you may raise less money. That's true. But also you might be initiating some thoughts for your supporters or people who read your letter that they need to be using. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Start some conversations. We actually haven't we haven't talked a lot about the pitfalls, um, and I, I I don't want to shortchange that. So you did mention, look, if there is tangible work that's done on these trips, it can almost always be more efficiently done in a more helpful way to the community to just give money to some local people, right? These countries do not have four percent unemployment. That's not the places right. that we're going, right? Where. Yeah. It's not America where we actually have to bring in the cheap labor to do the work that we don't want to do. That That's not what what's going on. So that's one pitfall. But that's not the only one that you mentioned. What are some of the other worries? There are so many where to begin. I mean, one of the worries is that when we go in and fix a problem a community has and then we leave again, we leave that community feeling really disempowered. Andy Crouch, some of his work I like, he says we, we've we flown in like little gods, solved a problem, and flown away again without establishing any relationship. And then we're leaving this community feeling disempowered, feeling ill-equipped. And the gospel is actually about relational flourishing. And so, yeah, they may have needed that work done, but we've done it in a way that was totally impersonal and dehumanizing, actually. So that's one of the pitfalls. I mean, another one of the pitfalls is that a lot of churches don't really do their homework. And so they'll send short-term teams in to do work that maybe 
they, the Western church has thought, has decided is needed when locals actually don't, don't see that as a need. Another pitfall is that sometimes they partner with organizations that are scams. Like I've, I've heard of many churches sending money and teams to orphanages, which are actually fronts for some pretty terrible things. But if you only go in for two weeks every summer, you can be fooled pretty easily. So there are just all kinds of of pitfalls, really. You said the gospel is about relational flourishing. I just, that's such a beautiful and interesting phrase. I just, can you, um, and maybe this is from the other book and I apologize, (laughs) but can you just, what do you mean by that? Like, and what's the, what's the evidence for that view? And what is, what does that really mean? Jesus came because God wants to reconcile all things to God's self. And so in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. That's a relationship. Through Jesus, we can also be reconciled to each other. That's flourishing in our relationships. But also through Jesus, we're reconciled to the earth and the plants and the animals that suffer the curse just as we do. So really, I think the wholeness that Jesus offers us is the wholeness of restored, reconciled relationships to our land, to our brothers and sisters in humanity, and to God. That's what I see the gospel as offering us. That's interesting because flourishing comes up a lot in the psychological world, right? Like that's essentially what we're trying to get our clients to experience. And I guess one step beyond that would be even in being a psychologist and and speaking with organizations or churches about their communication and and their language and their activities, uh, it ultimately comes down to human flourishing. And I've been trying to figure out how to make sense of that uh, with my faith in some sense. I'm rabbit trailing here, but I I think you'll find it interesting that, you know, when I first came across that language, I was like flourishing. Well, that's cool, but that's not salvation. That's not and even even when I had moved past like you know, it all being about heaven and hell. Theologically, I just was like, I was looking for bridges. And so the connection between flourishing and reconciliation is really good Mm -hmm. uh, because there are no Christian denominations that don't have some aspect of reconciliation, right? Catholics have confession. Protestants have, you know, atonement. I mean, everybody has atonement in their own way, but, you know, even, even penal substitutionary atonement is reconciliation. You could use that as a model, you know, with more reformed Christians. That's just really good. I'm, I'm just kind of verbally processing here and thanking you for that. Yeah, sure. I'm fascinated to hear you say that you were struggling to connect flourishing and salvation because that, that seems like the most natural connection in the world to me. Like, well, so, I would, I would say flourishing and sanctification is an obvious connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we separate out, you know, in classic theology, salvation being the sort of the, the status, the moment. Yeah. The justification, yeah. uh, that's the light switch one. And then the sanctification being the ongoing, of course, that's uh, flourishing is a perfectly good word for that flourishing in your relationship with God or with Christ or whatever. I don't want to overstate that. I I'm not sitting in my classes, like worried about how to <laughs> right, make right. sense of this. You know, a lot of the integration stuff that I have seen of, kind of classic evangelicalism and psychology is actually not, not very good at, at doing this at making this connection. And liberal theologians are a lot more clear that human flourishing 
is part of what they're doing, or even sort of like moderate theologians like Miroslav Volf, who I just had on the show, and his his work is all about flourishing. But I didn't, you just didn't get that language growing up evangelical. It was like a lot more about, are you in or out? Are you saved or not? Are you sure? Do you know where, do you know where you'd go tonight? That yeah. is, if you died tonight, rather, right. that is the ultimate binary light switch question you could ask somebody, right? Yeah. Yeah. But when I think about like God's promised kingdom, I think about the prophetic promises, like in Micah 4, 4, where, um, or 4, 3 and 4, where we're beating our swords into plowshares and where every person has their own vine and fig tree and no one will make them afraid. Or um, Isaiah 55, I think, where we see the mountains and the hills are singing and the trees are clapping their hands. These are visions of all creation flourishing. There's peace. There's enough to eat. Everybody has a safe home and things are growing. You know, that's the end goal. And I guess anymore, I can't really separate salvation, the moment, the light switch, the point of justification from that larger vision that I think is the ultimate goal of it all. Yeah, I don't either in my own theology anymore. Uh, yeah. But Amy, you're forgetting the order of things. Before that happens, Jesus comes and blows up the entire world and kills everybody. <laughs> and most people go oh. to hell. And then we get that. <laughs> Actually, most of that's not in my theology anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, last two things. So the last thing I'm going to ask you is just about today. You, you yeah. say some interesting stuff in the, in the book about your growth and change. And I want to ask one final follow-up. But before that... Just put some language on it. So you can use me as a test case because I've I've mentioned six mission trips to Mexico or whatever, or you could use my wife doing YWAM. For those of us who want to recontextualize those trips, so find the good in them, recognize the critique, what is one way we might just sort of tell that story back to ourselves that's a better way than we were sort of taught to tell the story at the time? That's such an interesting way of framing that question. I mean, in large part, that's what writing this book was for me. I started writing it 10 years after the experience. And I thought, what exactly was that experience? And did I learn from it what I was supposed to learn from it? And so I started returning to my journals and reading more books and recontextualizing the experience for myself. I think it's really important to approach your story and your past self with a lot of compassion and with a lot of gratitude. I think those are both key elements as you sort of rethink those experiences. And then also with a lot of curiosity. And, you know, for me, journaling was part of like re-seeing that experience. So as, as a writer, I mean, I have my own ways. And even when you think about revision, revision in writing, is literally revision. You're re-seeing an experience. One of the things I do when I'm writing sometimes is I take a scene from my past and I, I write down the memory and then I write the same memory from a different perspective. Sometimes not even the perspective of an animate being. So like you might write your earliest memory of like riding your tricycle in the yard and then you rewrite that memory from your mom's perspective if she was watching you or the, and then you rewrite that memory from the perspective of like a tree in the yard and see what you learn about 
the experience just from sort of placing yourself in a different vantage point as you look at that experience. So I don't know if that works for people who aren't writers, but for me, that's been a useful way of looking back at my experience without judgment, but just trying to get a different sort of perspective on it. You know, I think that we can be critical of things we did in the past without flogging ourselves, you know, without punishing ourselves. But that that criticalness begins with a compassionate curiosity about what happened. And I don't know if that's even as important as being more curious if you want to do it again. Right. And then thinking through, like, how would I how would I do this now? Totally. And yeah. um, how would I approach such a trip differently? What different kinds of language would I use about it? That sort of thing. Yeah, no, that's good. It's funny you mentioned family because I, I was just sort of thinking as well that family is maybe a good model for how to do this, right? Like one thing that I think we try to do and we naturally do do as we get older is we we kind of retell the story of our family, especially those of us who've done therapy. But I think people do this naturally of like, you know what? My mom was good in a lot of ways and it was she was bad in these other ways. And yeah. uh, eventually we have to come to a kind of hybrid understanding of our parents and our siblings and whatnot because people aren't perfect and family systems aren't perfect. And maybe we can just do the same thing for these trips of like, you know, I did learn and also probably a, a bunch of Mexican uh, construction workers could have had work and didn't you know, like right. both are true. Yeah. And that's just what it means to be human in the world is things right. are that complicated. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I mean, if we, the, the good place, the TV show did a great job in their second season of like noting all the ways that any good thing that we enjoy is on the backs of all this mm -hmm. suffering, but then there's also cooperation, which is good. And it's like, there's just, it's so messy, right? Right. None which, of us are pure. Yeah. What's your Enneagram number? <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I th I'm, I'm not, I'm not really into it. I, I say, I don't think the Enneagram's real, but I'm a seven. That's my answer. <laughs> well, Wanderlust fits well with sevens. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so this is just the last thing I wanted to, to end with here. And, and maybe it might be better to go deeper into this on our next conversation with the second book and discernment. But it, I just was so curious about how this narrative, this aspect of the narrative has moved on for you. I'm going to read a kind of a long quote here from you quote throughout my life. My relationship with God had been largely intellectual, not emotional. When feelings emerged, I had often shut them down. Emotions could not be trusted. Only the Bible could be trusted. Emotions had to be justified. Now I realize that I couldn't feel God's presence at all. Did I love God? I was devoted to God, determined to serve God. Quote, love isn't how you feel, it's what you do. End quote. Madeline Langle had written, and my actions showed that I loved God. But did I really? I felt no love, no warm, affectionate, personal feelings, no longing for God's presence. Did God love me? I believed so. I assented to that truth, but I didn't feel a thing. Help me to feel that you love me, I prayed. End quote. I mean, obviously, that's just an incredible little paragraph. And a lot of us can relate to that in various ways. I was hoping for an update. So you wrote that book 10 years after that happened. And then the book came out a few years ago. So we're a decade and some change after. What's, what's the intellectual versus emotional thing like for you now in your faith? You know, I write towards the end of the book. I'm not sure if you've gotten to this scene yet. 
about an experience of taking the Eucharist um, right around that same time where I understood as I took the Eucharist then sort of for the first time what grace was and that it meant God loved me. And I understood that intellectually before then, but that was an experience where I understood and felt for the first time that God loved me. And I didn't need to add anything to the statement. I didn't need to say, God loves me, so I will go to Southeast Asia. God loves me um, and, you know, but nothing, just God loves me. And honestly, like from that point on, I have lived with this steady assurance that I am beloved by God that I think is not really intellectual, but is something that I feel deeply. So in some sense, like that prayer has been answered in a, in a way that feels supernatural. Like I live every day with, with this steady assurance that I am beloved by God. And that's the foundation of basically all that I am and all that I do. Do I love God? Do I feel warm, affectionate feelings of desire for God? Not really. Sometimes, you know, some days. Yeah. I don't really think that's the point. I think the point is far more that I am loved by God. And the ways in which I do manage to love God in some faltering, half-assed kind of way, uh, you know, they're a gift from God as well. But God loves me. That's, that's, that's all I need. As for the intellectual stuff, I've gotten a lot better at trusting my emotions, trusting my intuition, knowing through my body and my feelings, as well as just my mind. I read in college, I think it's Frederick Buechner. He talks about some days I wake up and I believe in God. And some days I wake up and I don't believe in God. And all of those days I just keep going. And I, I, I felt that then. And I still feel that now. Some days I wake up and I think, this whole thing sounds so batshit crazy. <laughs> like, what is this story? Yeah, yeah. Right? Even on those days, I still believe. And that's like not an intellectual ascent almost. It's something much deeper than that. That is just like not leaving. I believe that I am held by God. I believe that I am beloved by God. And that's kind of where I am now. Amy, thank you so much for your time. The book's called Dangerous Territory, My Misguided Quest to Save the World. Did I get that right? Yeah, you got it. There will be a link to that in the show notes, of course. And uh, what's the what's the newer book called? The newer book is called Where Goodness Still Grows, Reclaiming Virtue in an Age of Hypocrisy. I'll have links to both of those. And we will, at some point in the future, have a conversation about that book, specifically around discernment, at least as a big part of that, because... I'm fascinated by that. And uh, yeah, I look forward to that. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. I'll also have a link to your Twitter and stuff like that. So people oh, yeah, can follow you. All right. Have a good day. You too. Next week, Myron Penner, philosopher and good friend of mine, is skeptical about demons and he will present his view in a uh, long and thorough conversation with me um, this week. Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing my conversation with Amy. He's available folks for podcast work. 
And his email is in the show notes as well as, well as both of those uh, books that Amy has written. Again, I can't recommend Dangerous Territory highly enough. Um, patrons, thank you. You're the best. And if you'd like to become a patron, join those best people. You can at patreon.com slash Dan Coke or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. You can email me with whatever you want at you have permission podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for some demons and a, a little Easter egg to look forward to. I wrote a, a special custom piece of music for Myron's intro and outro music next week. I wonder if you could guess what genre it is. All right. See you guys then. <laughs>